Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. And a happy Tuesday to you. Thank you for listening, whether it be on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. I have only been watching what's going on at the State Elections Board hearing via YouTube virtually from um, a few blocks away from the state capitol. But I got to tell you, I, I just want to throw hugs on the board members for listening to and dealing with and just soaking in the hour upon hour of absolute bat that has come to them all day today. Matt Mashburn, Sarah Tyndall Gazal, Edward Lindsay, Dr. Janice Johnston, bless their hearts for listening to diatribe after diatribe, nitpickery after nitpickery, as 2020 big lie conspiracy theorist election deniers came in one right after the other, after two minutes increments, some going over Joe Rossi, and some wearing t-shirts and, you know, because <clears throat> t-shirts with messages always really seriousness. Now, anyway, uh, bless bless these folks. Uh, nowhere to be found, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, Gabriel Sterling, anybody from his office, but those four board members, bless them for sitting through all of it. I, I thought, in fact, I started to try and gather some sound bites, and the more it went on, the more mind-numbing it got, and the more I thought, I can't put listeners through this. This is absolute needle in the haystack nitpick when you have when you have millions of registered voters participating in an election here here's 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 the cover they they run on they run on the cover of well there's millions of votes cast in the 2020 election there are of course going to be a handful here or there irregularities and i mean think about it if, if I asked you right now to run to your pantry and open up uh, a box of spaghetti pasta, right, that, that just dried, now, obviously I'm not going to make you count it wet. That would make it even more difficult, right? And I told you to count all of the noodles in that box of spaghetti, you're going to get a number. Is it the right number? Do you, are you confident right away it's the right number? If you had a machine help you count it, are you sure? it's going to give you the correct number of spaghetti noodles. And if you tried it a third time and you came up with a different number than the first two times, but it's off by, I don't know, one, two tops, right? I mean, you can't make that big a mistake, you would think. Are you then concerned that you are so far off that if you wanted to split those spaghetti noodles in half, that you're going to egregiously cheat one side or the other? That's what, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with folks who want to count uh, flakes of sand on the beach. And obviously the number's never going to be perfect. But audit, after audit, and hand recount, after hand recount, the result didn't change. I want to say there was a, 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 a hiccup with a duplication of ballots that cost President Joe Biden about 345 votes. He still won by like 11,000 plus, more than 11,500 votes. Yeah, here it is. 
After all the recounts, machine recounts, and hand recounts, and audits, Biden led by 11,779 votes. Now, we all know that's according to the Secretary of State's office, who clearly has it in for Donald John Trump. Right, MAGA fans? All the other Republican candidates that won up and down the states, Secretary of State's office didn't have it in for them. Just Donald John Trump. The man who told you oftentimes that the election was rigged. He told you that in 2016, ahead of losing the popular vote but winning the Electoral College. Quirky. He told you it was rigged. He continued to insist that that election that he won in the Electoral College was rigged. He continued to tell us that the inauguration estimates rigged. There were more people there than our eyes told us there were. Our eyes were apparently rigged. Rigged. It's all rigged. Every time he loses, it's rigged. It can't be that he's unpopular. When things don't go Donald Trump's way, it's because something about it is rigged. He does not believe in democracy. (laughs) He, He doesn't. It's plain as day. Clear as can be. And his base never will either. I'm going to say something that's not very scandalous, but very factual. A lot of what ills this country can't be fixed because of his base. The Electoral College is as messed up as it is because they need it to stay intact for him to have a chance for their mindset, for their ideology, to have a chance at the presidency, which protects gerrymandering which simply protects the will of the minority to have the majority of control. Especially when you factor the Senate in, we're just dealing with arbitrary lines that define how we're subdivided into 50 states that each get two representatives, regardless of population. When it's inconvenient to them, they call democracy mob rule. Well, we can't have mob rule. Our forefathers saw the folly of mob rule. Hmm. But what about at the state level? We don't, we don't do that with our, our constitutional officers, do we? We don't figure out some quirky electoral college at the state level, do we, to elect our secretary of state, our attorney general, our lieutenant governor, our governor, our Senate representation? We don't do that. Why do we do that at the federal level for that one particular office? I mean, listen, I didn't, I didn't skip civics class. I didn't skip American government uh, in school. I understand what our forefathers were thinking. They did not want, of all things, a dictator. But our forefathers initiated a government over 13 colonies that didn't have near the disparity in population, that didn't have near the disparity in congressional districts, I dare say there's no way our forefathers, if we could hit the hot tub time machine and ask them, oh boy, would today be a great day for a hot tub or what is so cold out? Anyway, (laughs) there's no way we could hop in the hot tub time machine and talk to our forefathers and say, hey, listen. So uh, we stopped growing our House of Representatives about 100 years ago because no reason. We just decided to do that. And now each voter has their house congressional representation diluted by about a third. Are y'all cool with that? What do you think? 
do you think our forefathers would have been okay with that? I guarantee you, a vast majority would not have been. Never mind the, hey, so listen, um, here's what's happening with our states today. Uh, we have this, this big piece of land here. It's called Wyoming. About 700,000, 800,000 people. I could be wrong. Could be less than that. I'm sitting here in front of a computer. Why don't I look it up? Oh, it's less than 600,000 people. It's populated enough to have one, one U.S. congressperson. One. And to show you how screwy even the House of Representatives is, Wyoming gets one congressperson for 578,000 people. Georgia has 14 folks in the House of Representatives. But we're not just 14 times as populous. We get a congressperson for every 771,429 people that live in the state of Georgia. If we just use the smallest, I'm sorry, the least populous state's population as a baseline for our house representation, well, Georgia's getting screwed. We, ha- we should have 18, maybe 19 if you round it up. Folks in the House of Representatives. <laughs> you know why that's not being fixed, though? I'll tell you why. If we did use Wyoming as a baseline, California, which has 52 representatives in the U.S. House, would actually have 68, 67, 68, depending on how you rounded it up or rounded it down. We can sit here and have an argument about whether or not you rounded it up or rounded it down, but 52 versus 67 House members representing the voters of California. Instead, we capped the House for no reason. We just did it. We just decided, or have decided oftentimes, I just leave things where they are. 435 is a not at all round number. I don't even know why we stopped there. We should have at least, at least a thousand folks in the House of Representatives. I would argue 1,200 because the U.S. population has, I believe, nearly, nearly or more than tripled since the last time we grew representation in the House of Representatives. I have the number right here in front of me, actually. Uh, We have grown by 3.57 times what we were in 1913, the last time we grew the House of Representatives. I think we added two seats when Alaska and Hawaii came in, and then we sort of absorbed them by shuffling some things around and got it back to 435. Because for some reason, somebody thinks that's a nice round number for uh, the House of the People, of we the people. We should actually have... And I'm, I just said 1,200, which is still lowballing. It's short by three. We should have, by my math, 1,553, it's not a round number, uh, representatives in the U.S. House. But you know who's against that. And for no reason, other than it continues to stifle the will of the people. Democracy. Conservatives do not like democracy. There, I said it. And we have to keep reminding folks of that the next 11 months. Get out and vote. You like democracy. Do you like democracy? Do you like having a voice? Do you like your vote mattering? Well, not only do you need to protect democracy, you need to help us grow democracy. And I'm not suggesting that we go to a popular vote for the office of the presidency, but I am saying if we fix the electoral college, uncap the house, grew the house, 1,200, 1,500, whatever, whatever the number needs to be. You have more access to your congressperson. If you live in 
Marjorie Taylor Greene's congressional district and you don't like the way she thinks or the way she acts, well, you may not have to deal with her. She may not be as popular or, or grab as much social media attention because she'd be one of 1,500 as opposed to one of 435. Those are big numbers too, right? Yeah, exactly. That's the point. Any little thing can kind of crop up in the midst of 5 million registered voters. And one by one, they lined up to tell us how there were these little quirks here. And yes, there were audits done and recounts by machine, by hand. And I think 300 votes popped up or, or, or sprouted up for Donald Trump that weren't there before, and he still lost. But, well, God bless him. They showed up to keep complaining to the Georgia Election Board today that got to keep doing this until the outcome changes. Now, who does that sound like? Hmm. Back after this, The Ron Show on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show for Tuesday. I don't know when the first time it occurred to me that public financing for for-profit entities was a bad idea. I think it was when I lived in Louisiana, and the big push back then, this was the early 2000s, like the first five, six years of the 2000s. It was definitely before Katrina. Uh, yeah, Hurricane Katrina. Uh, for the, if you never lived in Louisiana, when you hear somebody say before Katrina, they mean 2005. It's just... just Remember that. Uh, anyway, there was a push. The New Orleans Saints were kind of hand-wringing about wanting a new venue. They felt like they were working in an aged venue, and they were. It's an aged venue, and Katrina did not help that, although it kind of did in the end. They got state and federal money to fix it. Anyway, uh, they wanted a new venue, and they were... Oh, you know how you know how renderings. You ever see renderings for new facilities or new subdivisions or mixed-use develop? Oh, those artist renderings—they're the best. We love them. We want to stare at them and look at them from different angles. They were putting out gorgeous renderings of open-air stadiums, domed stadiums, stadiums that had roofs that opened and closed. They loved renderings back then. So the Saints wanted hundreds of millions of dollars. In today's dollars, I would I would venture to say more than a billion to in Louisiana, like like the poorest state in the country. It's like Louisiana, Mississippi, per capita, poorest states in the country. They wanted taxpayer dollars, not for roads, infrastructure needs, bridges, and that state is steadily sinking. <laughs> they lose a football field of land every day, I believe. Uh anyway. Not for schools. Again, one of the one of the bottom rung schools when it comes uh, states when it comes to public education. I mean, not that Georgia's any better, uh, but they wanted hundreds of millions of dollars for a new football facility. And I started thinking about it. Then I was digging into this. I was like, this. I, I, I remember reading an, an economist who said, "Well, you know, uh, a professional football stadium has the economic impact basically of a super Walmart." Because think about the jobs. No, not the millionaire athletes who play the sport. Although that, that's factored in, right? There aren't many full-time jobs at a venue like a domed facility or a basketball arena. That could double for hockey. At least you've got two teams with you know, 75, 80 dates on the calendar. You're, you're at least filling up half the calendar with those. 
with a football stadium, you're getting 10 home games a year. You might get a bowl game or two. You might get a few high school games thrown in there if it's the venue of the state that everybody wants to send those games to. But you don't fill up a month. You don't fill up a full month of a 12-month calendar with a domed facility. Listen, I love Mercedes-Benz Stadium. I actually love the venues in Minneapolis much better and the one in LA. Oh my gosh, that's gorgeous. Both of them with those those plexiglass ETFE clear roofs. They don't open and close. You can get fresh air in and out of both venues from from the from the end zones. They have doors that open. In fact, I think the LA stadium is just open. So in fact, the Georgia TCU football game about a year ago, there were fans sitting in the upper deck who were getting rained on. Rain in California? Right now, right? Uh, anyway, from, from then on, I just knew that this was a, a bad idea. Throwing taxpayer dollars at a for-profit venture when the franchises are owned by men or women or entities that can spend billions just to buy the team. And why do they do that? Because it's very profitable, y'all. Politicians push for these venues because, well, they like being given credit for bringing the Falcons, the Braves, to town. And obviously, they like making millionaire and billionaire friends happy too. What politician doesn't? Seriously. So it doesn't surprise me as well when an audit was done that shows that the Georgia film credit isn't really the job creator that promoter said it was. The folks at uh, Georgia State University's Fiscal Research Center said, Georgia's growing film industry creates far fewer jobs than its proponents said it would. That new audit, reporting from the AJC, James Salzer, by the way, massive tax credit receives uh, that, that the film industry receives cost taxpayers $59,455 per job. Alternative uses for the more than $1 billion a year in annual tax credits would create thousands of more jobs, according to this audit. The Georgia Film Tax Credit induces substantial economic activity in Georgia, the report says. It is also the largest tax expenditure amongst Georgia's economic development incentives. Consistent with studies of other state film tax incentive programs, the state of Georgia loses money, the report says. James Salzer writes, the latest audit estimates the industry will earn $1.35 billion worth of credits this fiscal year, rising to $1.4 billion by 2029. The latest state audit on the film tax credit was posted Thursday, less than a month before the start of the 2024 legislative session. According to James Salzer, it also comes following a month-long joint House-Senate committee study on the value of the billions of dollars in tax breaks the state gives out to businesses. Now, I'm going to go on a limb here and say, this is going to get a lot more scrutiny from lawmakers, particularly those on the right, because we've seen a sea change politically in the state of Georgia. A lot of folks coming here (laughs) from New York and California We know how those states vote. And we've seen a shift in demography and in election result, right? In the state of Georgia. And this particular tax credit is getting a lot more scrutiny from those on the right because of those changes, demography and election and voter turnout. I mean, the battery Atlanta and Cobb County is falling short of projections, but it's not bringing a bunch of liberals from California. In fact, do you remember this was literally uh, about two years ago when Marjorie Taylor Greene, this was on the throes of Georgia turning for Joe Biden. She actually says after Democrat voters and big 
donors ruin a state like California, you would think it wise to stop them from doing it to another great state like Florida. Brainwashed people that move from California, New York, really need a cooling off period. Yeah, she was really espousing that, and for some reason, just Democrats, if they move to another state, they shouldn't be allowed to vote for like five years. I will share the AJC story uh, in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com so you can see for yourself what I'm talking about. And by the way, a great follow on Twitter X, whatever you're calling it, uh, J.C. Bradbury. He's an economist and professor at Kennesaw State University. Find him at J.C. underscore Bradbury, B-U-R-Y. It's a fantastic follow. When it comes to tax incentives and uh, what sort of economic impact these venues or tax breaks for industry have when it comes to creating jobs and growing local economies. By and large, you'll come to find that a lot of the data he shares tells you that these things don't really create jobs the way they're pitched to us by politicians. Okay, speaking of movies, Leave the World Behind, Civil War, two trailers and movies that have uh, folks talking about politics and how Hollywood perceives this country. We'll dive into those when the Ron Show returns on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. Can I just tell you, I am a huge fan of dystopian. Dystopian movies, TV shows. I was so into the Walking Dead franchise, y'all. I don't know when I really tapped out. It's probably been about three or four years when I tapped out. And I think I was a little late to that. I mean, folks, I bought in when The Walking Dead premiered. I was just ensconced with the 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 concept of what life would be like on this planet after society just completely unravels. I also decided as soon as I could I was going to watch the movie based on a 2020 novel called Leave the World Behind. The novel written by Ramon Alam, the movie starring Julia Roberts, Ethan Hawke, uh, Marshala Ali, Kevin Bacon. The, these characters are all trying to make sense of this breakdown in societal norms. Wi-Fi goes out, cell phone signal's gone, can't watch TV, cable's gone. All the typical uses of technology, you, you, you start to see boats adrift and crashing onto beaches, plane crashes, all these odd things going on. Uh, it, by the way, if you haven't seen the movie, first of all, it's been out for weeks. If you have Netflix, why haven't you seen this? Uh, I've, I've, I really kind of feel like I should tiptoe around the spoiler alert, but come on, it's been out for a while now. You should have seen this. Uh, and from what I understand, the film varies a little bit the way it ends uh, comparable to the book. So maybe you've read the book and decided you, haven't, you don't want to see the movie, or maybe you've seen the movie and decided, oh, I'll go read the book. E- either way, I'm... I'm just going to warn you, there's going to be a little tiptoeing around uh, the, the premise here because I want you to sort of understand uh, you know, what I'm talking about. Um, so it, it turns out what we have happening is some sort of a foreign aggressor who realizes when American society gets inconvenienced and scared that we turn on each other. I mean, it didn't happen during 9-11, or after 9-11, I should say. Although, eventually it did. Inevitably, it did. We did become a more divided country because of our reaction to that attack, right? So this movie sort of plays that out a little bit. And the, the funny thing is, 
you have those who, oh, I loved it. Oh, my gosh, just raved about it. And then you have those who are like, well, I heard the Obamas produced it, so I'm not even going to watch it, or I hated it. Oh, it was stupid. Dumb premise. What? <laughs> you literally point out what's going on in the movie. <laughs> so, okay, for those who, who haven't seen it yet or, or don't even know, let me give you the audio to the trailer, and obviously the trailer doesn't tell you everything. Uh, basically... Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke are a, a, a married couple with two kids. And Julia's got a little antsy and decided she wants to get out of the city for no reason. She just wants to get out of the city. So she surprise packed the suitcases, didn't tell her husband. And she did that because she knew he wouldn't say no if everything was just set up and ready for him to go. So they're going to go uh, out, uh, you know, out of the city, uh, go stay at a, a house out in the middle of nowhere that they've rented. I, you know, I guess you did it on Airbnb or Verbo or something like that. And uh, the homeowners actually wind up showing up because of all the things coming apart at the seams in the city. So uh, anyway, that's a little bit of the setup. Here's some of the audio. I went online this morning and I rented us a beautiful house out by the beach. I figured if I made the reservation and packed our bags, it would eliminate most of the reasons to say no. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is nice. Kids look so happy. Wi-Fi is working. Uh-oh. Get a pad. I'm so sorry to bother you that this is our house. By the way, did I mention that the homeowners are black and the folks renting the house are white? So naturally, there's already that little bit of a racial animosity when Julia Roberts questions whether or not these people are really the homeowners of this fabulous house that they rented at whatever Cush Beach Town this is that Clearly, Julia Roberts doesn't expect to see black homeowners at. This is your house? (laughs) We were driving back to the city, then something happened. You want to stay here, but we're staying here. Mm -hmm. We need to get them out of here. I need to think everything's going to be okay. Everything is going to be okay, isn't it? Uh-oh. We are seeing ongoing cyber attacks across the country. Something is happening, and I don't trust them. Everything I know, I have told you. I don't believe you. I would do anything to protect my family. What you do is your business. So yeah, good movie. If you haven't seen it yet, go see Leave the World Behind that uh, came out last month on Netflix. Um, trying to think, what else did I leave? Oh yeah, the, the, the whole scene where uh, they're, they're trying to leave the beach town and they're, they're kind of cornered into where they are. And this is where like whoever's doing this, whatever country, whoever's hacked, uh, they have hacked a fleet of electric cars, self-driving, like the self-driving Teslas, I guess. And they're using them to steer them to clog up. It's just fascinating stuff. Uh, I, I don't know. I enjoyed it. I thought it. I thought it was pretty thought-provoking, 
and uh, a, a pretty good insight on uh, where we are as a country and how fast we can see things devolve. I, I mentioned I, I like dystopian, right? That's my thing. Uh, I remember watching how in the initial uh, season of The Handmaid's Tale, how things got to where they presumed this future could go. And it literally came about when some crazies stormed the Capitol. Y'all, The Handmaid's Tale came out. What year did this come out? Oh, wow, 2017? Okay, I thought it was way earlier than But anyway, it came out in 2017, long before January 6, 2021. It's just interesting to see how those who write these sort of things into existence and then put them on film or stage kind of picture our future if it takes a dystopian turn, right? So have you seen the trailer yet for the A24 movie that's called Civil War? Okay, let me give you that. Okay, so real quick, before I give you the trailer, let me give you a little bit of the synopsis. I'm reading from screen right here. Uh, Starring Kirsten Dunst, uh, Wagner Mora, uh, Jesse Plemons, and Nick Offerman as a tyrannical U.S. president. Oh, Nick Offerman as a president. Okay. Uh, Civil War appears to be a fearless take on an extreme but potentially plausible form of American dystopia in which 19 states secede from the country. Marjorie Taylor Greene wanted to have a national divorce. Remember that? Uh, Anyway, the Western forces, led by the unlikely alliance of Texas and California, have militarized under a new American flag with two stars as opposed to 50. Uh, There's also mention of a Florida alliance and a glimpse of several U.S. factions shown in the Civil War trailer, which includes Washington, Montana, Georgia, Louisiana, and Minnesota as some of the states that seceded. All right, so now let me give you the trailer because uh, the first time, I, and by the way, I will give you the link to the trailer in today's show notes as well as the screen rant that gives you the synopsis here uh, at ronshowetl.com. This does not sound so far-fetched, y'all. 19 states have seceded. The United States Army ramps up activity. The White House issued warnings to the Western forces as well as the Florida Alliance. The three-term president assures the uprising will be dealt with swiftly. Let me know if you want to try anything on. Are you guys aware there's like a pretty huge civil war going on? all across America. We just try to stay out with what we see on the news. Seems like it's for the best. Citizens of America, the so-called Western forces of Texas and California have suffered a very great defeat at the hands of the United States military. Mr. President, do you regret the use of airstrikes against American citizens? We're moving to D.C. today. We need to go down there. They shoot journalists on sight in the Capitol. Every instinct in me says this is death. Bloody. Every time I survived the war zone, I thought I was sending a warning home. Don't do this. But here we are. There's some kind of misunderstanding here. What? Well, you're American, okay? Okay. What kind of American are you? Whoa. You don't know? That's what did it for me. (laughs) The Western forces will reach the White House on July 4th. Oh, my God. Get in the car! Get in the car! You're gonna hang back. I'm not hanging back. One nation 
under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Go, 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 go. God bless America. So that is like apocalyptic, dystopian, modern warfare porn. It's just, it looks really good. Uh, I'm not going to lie. But I also think it's a bit of a cautionary tale. And there are, even then, I think we're going to see uh, a reaction. Sure, maybe if you check social media, you're already seeing a reaction from both sides of the uh, ideological spectrum about this sort of uh, cinema. I have a theory about if there is to be a potential downfall of this country, and I'm not saying it's going to happen in my lifetime or in the next 100 years or 200 years, whatever, I, I, I would say that I do firmly believe we are on a trajectory. As much as we want to worry about uh, China militarizing or a, a strengthening Putin, I actually think that the Chinese, the... Russians, who, whoever else wants to take this country down, know that they're not going to do it in the traditional militaristic sense. They're not, it's not about invading this country by tank and bomber and <laughs> you know, aircraft carrier or even even nuclearization. I I think the leave the world behind premise in particular really taps into what scares me the most about the peace and security and sanctity of the United States. I, I think, and I, in fact, I'm almost certain Vladimir Putin, and, and here's why I know I'm certain of this, I'm certain Vladimir Putin knows that the best way to destroy the United States is to do it from within. Why am I certain of that? Well, I'm certain of that because... It's not as if the Soviet Union didn't know the same thing. And no, I'm not talking about the communists that were infiltrating government that Senator McCarthy was looking after. By the way, another good show to watch, Fellow Travelers, eight-part miniseries that just concluded uh, on Showtime. Uh, it follows the it has nothing to do with national security. Well, it does in some, in some respects, but it follows the lives of two uh, not-out-at-all gay men who have an intertwined romance over the course of decades, and it starts in Washington, D.C. during the McCarthy hearings. Anyway, it's no secret that the Soviet Union knew that dividing us from within was definitely an attainable goal, and they sought to do that. They sought to uh, target our civil rights fractures, our fractures on race, to try and create division within this country to weaken this country. And <laughs> this is one of those things that they don't teach in, in any classroom. Uh, maybe there's a college course out there that teaches this stuff. I would love to sit in on that course. I actually learned that from TV. <laughs> if you haven't watched FX's The Americans, I think it's a three-season show. It was fabulous. It was a fantastic show. It, it, it had you questioning who you were rooting for, and I'm not saying I, I lost my love for America watching it, but it followed this uh, embedded American, uh, this embedded 
couple, this couple that had been put together in the Soviet unions and then slipped into the U.S. to act as a married couple in the United States so that they could spy within the United States while also being that prototypical suburban American family with the two kids. That, and they did have kids. And you found yourself listening to conversations uh, about how the Soviets viewed our weaknesses and where the Soviets were ahead of us when it came to combating apartheid in South Africa. Yeah, you don't learn that in, in history, do you? <laughs> anyway, I, I just I find this sort of stuff fascinating, and I sort of subscribe to the theory that uh, our, our aggressors outside our borders probably think it's smarter and easier, actually, to take us down from within. And I find it fascinating that uh, Ruman Alam, who wrote the book, Leave the World Behind, that led to the movie, and that Alex Garland, who has put together this Civil War movie that comes out next spring, like, I don't, I don't know if they're doing it just for the pure entertainment value and the money-making part, or if they're sort of like, hey, hey guys, um, this isn't so far-fetched. Can we all get our together here? Actually, who am I kidding? I know it's for the money. Gosh, it's America. <laughs> All right, when we come back, another AJC op-ed on Cop City leaves a lot out. Surprise, surprise. Final segment of the Ron Show for Tuesday. Thought I'd follow up on the opening segment. Uh, the state elections board heard Republican activists and election skeptics a lot today. But the state election board deadlocked on opening an investigation of Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and his office on a 2-2 vote uh, Mark Neese at the AJC reporting the 2-2 vote short of majority required. The board then voted unanimously to ask the General Assembly to clarify whether it even has the power to police Brad Raffensberger, a Republican who certified the 2020 vote count. Okay, enough of that. Seriously, enough of that. It's been three years. I want to spend some time on another op-ed written in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I believe this dropped yesterday, maybe Sunday night. It was yesterday. Uh, Bill Torpy, who is a columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, decided he too wants to wander in again with his opinion on the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility. And that's his right to do so. He's done so before. He, like the publisher who published an op-ed, what was it, a month ago or so? Uh, was it David Morse? Failed to mention the Atlanta Journal-Constitution owned by Cox Media and that Cox Media is the primary, like the big donor, the number one donor to the Atlanta Police Foundation, who is pushing for the Atlanta Public Safety Training. He doesn't mention in his op-ed those ties. And, and Okay, so fine. They're not going to do that. That's that's fine. But they can't get uncomfortable or upset when other folks do point it out. So he wrote an op-ed that basically was a lot of uh, inevitabilityism. Is that a word? It just reeked of inevitability. And basically the premise was, well, so what What if there are enough signatures on the referendum ballots? Uh, and what if the referendum makes it on a ballot? And what if the referendum backers actually win? Uh, and his assertion is that by then, and it's not looking like it'll even appear on the March ballot at this rate, because this the city will have like 50 days after a judge even decides how many of the boxes of petitions get to be counted or not. The city has 50 days to certify those who signed the petitions. 50 days, y'all. That is, um, by my math, that's midway into February. There's no way they're going to be able to turn around and get this 
referendum question on a March ballot. I just don't see it happening. And I think that that's been sort of the game plan all along to, 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 to ride this out as much as possible. While meanwhile, as Bill Torpy and his op-ed writes, <clears throat> sewer lines have been dropped and plumbing lines have been dropped and curbs are being paved and foundations are being poured. And by the time, if since it's likely not going to wind up on the March ballot, it winds up on the November ballot, Torpy's premise is, the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility could be done 70% by the time we vote in November. In other words, he thinks it's sort of in- inevitable that whether the referendum even makes it to a ballot and voters decide that they don't want $90 million in taxpayer money or however much that, that the money, the, the number changes how much of it is going to be taxpayer expense, uh, even if voters decide that, no, they don't want it, they want to break the contract, well, too bad, it's 70% done, so what are we going to do, just waste this money now? No, they're going to charge forward with it one way or the other. Yeah, so this thing just drips. I'm sorry, no, it's drenched in inevitability. Basically, he's saying, even if Cop City comes up for a vote, don't bother voting no, because the city will have almost completed the facility by then. Which is, to me, like poor form on a few levels. The first, again, I I mentioned, the AJC leaves out that the parent company has an affiliation with the Atlanta Police Foundation. I mean, it's one thing for the publisher, David Morse, to show no journalistic integrity. It's quite another for Bill Torpy to do it as well. He's a journalist. This isn't his first go-round. Man has a degree. Bill also likes to cast no aspersions to the fact that uh, work on the facility continues despite the legal hangups. And by the way, why is that? Well, it lends to the inevitability. He and Mayor Andre Dickens, the Atlanta Police Foundation, Foundation's backers, his employees, parent company being the leading donor to Bill, are counting on, should it go to a vote? No, they're counting on that. They're counting on you go... (laughs) Well, by the time we get a vote on it, it'll be 70% done. Okay, I'm just going to go ahead and vote for it. That's literally what they're counting on. Lastly, to me, such a tactic is, in and of itself, troubling in an era where democracy is imperiled up and down the ballot already. We've been talking about this almost the entire show. Telling people, in essence, don't bother. It's pretty much already a done deal by the time you get to vote. To me, it's a form of voter suppression. Let me give you a taste of what Torpy writes. But the question that bubbles beneath all of this is, what if they win? What happens if the question goes to voters and they say, no, we don't want it? It's an interesting and improbable scenario. But what if? Currently, the city is plowing ahead and building at the 85-acre site in South DeKalb County. The land has been cleared. Electrical, sewer, and water hookups have been installed, and foundations are being poured. The city says the site is perhaps 40% complete. The earliest that the effort, assuming it gets enough valid signatures, could ever get on a ballot would probably be the state's primary elections in May. He's not wrong. By then, the $90 million center would be perhaps 70% built. So if Atlanta's voters get to vote and say that they don't want it, what happens then? Does a judge issue an order that says, tear it down and build a bird sanctuary? 
it sounds silly. And Mayor Andre Dickens' office says, I'm simply being speculative. And yes, I am, Bill Torpy writes. But I remember the old bridge abutments on Moreland Avenue a few decades ago. And then he alludes to the uh, presidential parkway that was supposed to connect Stone Mountain to downtown Atlanta and how there were these bridge abutments right there at Moreland in the shadow of Freedom Park that stayed there forever after, long after it was decided, no, you're not going to get that presidential parkway. The abutment stayed up there for a long time and they were eventually taken down. I will share Torpy's column in the show notes at ronshowatl.com. I also shared it uh, at ronshowatl on Twitter X, whatever we're calling it, so that you can see it there as well if you'd like. Basically, Torpy's saying it doesn't matter if you vote no or not because by the time you get to vote no on it, it's going to be 70% done. So you might as well just suck it up, buttercup. I mean, that is not democracy. Seems to be the theme of the show today. That's going to do it for today's Ron Show. Back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com. Again, show notes and more, ronshowatl.com. See you tomorrow.